standing on the promises of God. It's the name that um, we have given to a series that we are sharing together in this season where we're taking up each morning a single promise of God that he has given to us in his word. And we're taking that promise and we're exploring it. We're, we're, we're learning about it. We're unpacking it uh, to discover how it impacts our life in Jesus. We're thinking about how that promise shores up the foundations of our faith, how it helps us against the spiritual forces that we do battle with every day as, as followers of Jesus. And, and we're thinking about how that promise enables us to live more effectively for God's glory and for our good because we have the promise. And how we would, how we would live for God's glory more than if we didn't have that promise. So we're, we're doing that together here. And today the promise is the promise of God's presence in our lives as followers of Jesus. His promise to always and forever be with us, and not just close by, not just near at hand, but but so present with us that he is literally in us and inseparable from us and we from him. That's the promise that we want to hang out with together this morning. The promise of God's presence. And just like the other 3,500 plus promises that God makes in his word, he cannot break this promise. Made by him, it stands for eternity, and we, brothers and sisters, stand on it, on this promise. Now, before we step into the promise itself, let's talk um, about something else first. One of the constant challenges that we face as Christians and in the Christian life is the challenge of confronting fear and dealing effectively with fear in our lives. While the fears that we may have are different for each one of us, the fact is we all have to deal with fears. Would you agree with me in that? Sure, we do. We may not share the same fears, each of us, but but we all have them. In fact, did you know that in the Bible, the word fear and its related words, frightened, afraid, terrified, trembling, dread, they appear in our Bibles more than a thousand times. And what that tells us is that fear is really an age-old and universal problem. It's been around for a very long time, and it is a very familiar foe to those of us who love Jesus. Fear. I mean, think about this. The, the very first emotion that Adam and Eve experienced after their disobedience in the Garden of Eden was fear. If you might remember, when they rebelled against the Lord, what happened? They hid from God, right? They knew that sin had entered their lives and they were hiding from God and then God goes looking for them and he asks them, why are you hiding from me? And what did they say? We were afraid. Genesis chapter 3. Abraham, a man whose name is synonymous with faith in Scripture, was afraid. He was afraid in his old age that he would die without an heir. God had said, I'm going to raise up a brand new nation through you. And I'm going to bless the whole world through this nation. Well, Abraham's an old man, and that promise from God hasn't happened. And the scriptures say that he became afraid, so much so that God has to come to him in Genesis 15 and say to him, Do not be afraid. 
I'm going to keep the promise. And of course, God did. But nonetheless, Abraham was afraid. When the Israelites are backed up against the Red Sea and the Egyptians are pressing in on them and there's no way out, it is God through Moses who comes to them and says to them, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 11, when a giant named Goliath came out and challenged the armies of Israel, it says that Israel's armies saw Goliath and they were terrified. They were afraid. The whole army melted. And even though David, as a teenager, courageously brought down that giant with his sling and a stone, many, many of the songs that David writes in the Psalms, he writes openly admitting that he is afraid. He's struggling with fear and he's coming to his God because he's afraid. Elijah, whose life we studied together in the fall um, or in the early spring, he he stood up against, if you remember, 850 prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? On Mount Carmel. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, it says he called down fire from heaven and a great victory was won by the Lord that day. But then within 24 hours of that moment, the wicked queen Jezebel says, you're going to be dead by tomorrow. And what happens? This mighty prophet is overcome by fear, isn't he? And he runs for a hundred miles to get away from her. And in fact, the, the scriptures tell us that he was so overcome with fear, so discouraged that he wanted to die. In the New Testament, the fiery apostle Peter, the other 11 disciples, they're out on Lake Galilee and a terrific storm comes sweeping in and it's about to swamp their boat and they are afraid of this storm. They're afraid they're about to die. And then who comes walking on the water? Jesus comes walking on the water and the scriptures say when they saw Jesus, then they were really afraid because they didn't know it was Jesus. They weren't sure what it was. And then Jesus gets in their boat. The storm immediately stops and Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. It's me. And if I'm in your boat, you're going to do okay, right? That idea. And even the Apostle Paul, writer of, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, writer of much of our New Testament, he is Jesus' choice to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And Paul, even Paul, confesses his fear about that thought, about sharing Jesus with the Gentiles. In fact, he asks the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6 to pray that he will not be afraid to tell others about Jesus. Well, that's Paul. Think about that. Now, all that to say, fear has been around, obviously, for a very long time since the Garden of Eden. And when we experience fear, we're joining some pretty elite company. It doesn't make it right, but it is certainly a foe. Fear is a foe that we know well. And as we talk about fear together for a moment, one of the things we need to understand about it is that fear has to do with the future. Fear lives in the future. We, we don't fear the past, do we? You don't fear the past. Why? Why don't you fear the past? Hey, it's in the past, right? You're not going to change that. We may have regrets about the past. We may have to absorb some consequences that 
uh, are the result of things that we have done in the past, but we really don't fear the past. And we don't fear the present either. The present might challenge us. It could disappoint us. It could make us angry. But we really don't fear the present because we're being forced to deal with whatever is confronting us right then. In that moment, we have to deal with it. So we're not fearing the present. What we fear is what we don't know about. And where does that live? That lives in the future, doesn't it? That lives in the future. Whether it's what might happen five minutes from now or, or five months from now or five years from now. We don't, we don't know what it will be. We don't know what it is. But some unwanted outcome could be waiting for us. And when we think about the future and that, then we become afraid. Fear hides in our future. It has to do with something that's out in front of us. Some potential negative, a loss or a pain, something that we would call bad, and we're afraid that it could happen. Fear lives in the future. And then one other observation we would make there on your note page. Um, we don't have to go looking for fear, do we? Do you ever go looking for fear? Do you ever say, hey, I think I'll go looking for some fear today. You never do that. I don't do that. We live in a fallen, sinful world, and fear is a part of that world. Just like we noted a moment ago with Adam and Eve. The moment they sinned, they knew fear. Because fear is a part of a sinful world. We don't have to go looking for it. It will find us, this thing called fear. And it may well pay you or me a visit even today. And the problem won't be that fear might stop by today in your life or my life. The problem will be if we open the door to it and give it entrance. That's when it will become a problem. There's no way to keep fear from knocking at your door, but we sure don't have to let it in. We don't have to say, hey, fear, welcome back. Missed you. Come on in. I've, I've, I've prepared your room for you. Sit down. Stay a while. We don't do that, do we? We don't have to do that. When we receive future-focused fear into our hearts and into our minds and we give it place and we nurture it, brothers and sisters, you already know this, we're going to be in trouble. Because that's what fear does. It just it puts us in a tough spot. I use the term future-focused fear to distinguish it from what we might call a healthy kind of fear, the kind of fear that keeps us out of danger or harm, there's a, a good fear that, for example, keeps us from roller skating on the interstate, right? That's a good fear to have. Um, or, or not going to touch that hot stove. That's a, a fear that's good. I'm not going to wave my ski pole on a mountaintop in an electrical storm, right? That's, that's a good fear to, to have. To, it keeps us protected. But there is this other future-focused fear. Now, in the middle of your note page, here's why fear, future-focused fear, is not okay. Fear is expressing the opposite of faith. Look at Hebrews 11.6. We'll put it up on the screen for us. And it says, without faith, it is what? It is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible 
to please him. Faith says, whatever it is, it's going to be okay because my God is big enough to handle it. As we talked about last time, he's big enough to handle it. Fear says, no, no, it won't be okay. And and, and quite frankly, fear says, God isn't going to do it for you. And fear doesn't even think about God. Fear lives clear at the opposite pole. It lives clear over there, opposite of faith. And I don't know how it goes for you, but when I think about those seasons in my life when fears about the unknown have have snuck into my heart, they've snuck into my mind, and they've settled down and become comfortable, that is when God seems to me to be the farthest away from me. When I have given quarter to fear in my life. And, and God seems far away, not because he has moved, but because my faith has gotten relegated off to some obscure corner where it can't get in the way. And I'm relying on my own skill, my own abilities, my own resources and talents and experience. And, and fear loves it when uh, I'm focused on me and what I have or don't have. And and, and so I get focused on my very limited abilities and resources, and I realize that I don't have what it's going to take. And fear swoops in and says, it won't be okay. It's not going to be okay. Future-focused fear has no place in my life. It has no place in your life, brother or sister in Jesus. It does not please our God because there's no faith in fear. Do you agree? No faith. In fear. In 2 Timothy 1 7, the Apostle Paul writes a young pastor whose name is Timothy. I like that thought. Apparently, though, Timothy was vulnerable to fear. And I, I have a kindred spirit with him, I think. And he says, God did not give us a spirit of what? Fear. That doesn't come from God, but a spirit of power and love and of self discipline. Some versions of our scriptures say that he gives us a sound mind or or sound thinking as opposed to fear-driven thinking. Fear doesn't come from God. The Apostle Peter will say it this way, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties. Now, that's another word for fear. Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Take your fears to him. Future-focused fear is not okay. It's the opposite of faith. So then the question becomes for us who love Jesus and believe in God as our, our loving Father, how do I counter this natural inclination of my sin-infected heart? How do I counter that inclination to run toward fear? What's the antidote for fear even as I'm looking into an uncertain future? How do I battle that? How do I battle it? The answer We focus on the promise that my God is always going to be with me. That's how you address the issue of fear in your life. The promise of God's presence. Listen, brother, sister, if you have been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus through faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, you are not going to be doing your future alone ever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's what this promise is really declaring. 
And when I anchor my faith to this promise, the promise of God's presence in my life, fear can come knocking, and it certainly will come, but it will not be given entrance into my life. The door slams shut on this ungodly, unwanted, faith-weakening foe when I lay claim to the promise of the presence of God in my life. Let's take a look at where God gives this promise to his people. We see it for the first time in the Old Testament, and then it will be repeated for us in the New. But you're open, your Bible's open to Deuteronomy 31, right? We're all there? Yeah? All right, here's the context for this moment. Uh, Some three million Israelites whom God has supernaturally taken out of Egyptian slavery are standing on the borders of the promised land, the land that God said, I'm giving to you as a people to live in. It will be your land. Moses gathers the people together and he delivers God's message. Verse 1, chapter 31. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. (laughs) He's twice as old as me. (laughs) I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Now, you will perhaps recall how 40 years earlier the Lord had brought this people to this very same moment, this very same location, with the very same words and the very same intention. It's time to go into the land and lay claim to the promise of the land. Only fear crippled the Israelites' faith in that moment. If you remember the story, they said, there's giants in the land. We can never overcome them. We'll be destroyed if we try to go into the land. Now, God said that he would go before them. He said, I'll give you success. You're going to do it. But fear blurred the vision of the people. And all they could see was their own strength, which was not very much. They could only see their size, which wasn't very great, and their abilities. And they said, no, no, we can't do this. We can't take the land. It won't be okay. And remember, that's what fear says. It won't be okay. Only Joshua and Caleb believed the Lord 40 years earlier. And therefore, they would be the only two from that generation who would step on promised land ground. Israel wanders, if you remember, for 40 years in the desert until that fear-filled generation dies and is replaced by a new generation. To them now God says, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. Or forsake you. What is that? That's the promise of God's presence right there. Clear as can be. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God says, I'm going to be with you. You do not need to be afraid. It is the promise of his presence. Now, turn to the right. Let's leave this this moment. 
Turn to the right just a couple of pages uh, until you come to the book that bears Joshua's name, chapter 1, and find verse 1. We'll continue the story. Joshua 1.1, 1, 1. after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is what? With you wherever you go. What a promise. Of course, we know that God was indeed true to his word here. Israel does prevail. They do settle the land. And the book of of Joshua is, is really that story. But three times in Deuteronomy, in the passage we read, two more times here, God declares to his people, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He makes this promise of his constant presence. Now, at this point, someone might understandably counter, well, yeah, Tim, but, but that was a promise that God made a long time ago to a special group. That's not a promise he's making to me. It's a promise that he made to them. He would be with them. That promise doesn't apply to me. Now, I would say that would be true. If it weren't for the fact that the Holy Spirit carries this promise, in fact, word for word carries this promise from these places in the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the life of the Christian who lives in the New Testament, which means you and me. Turn your note page over, if you wouldn't mind, and run with me now, leaving Joshua. Run way far to the right in your Bible, almost to the end, and find the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. And as you're making your way there, the writer of Hebrews is wrapping up his letter to some first century Christians who are, well, they're just being hammered for their faith in Jesus. And uh, he's going to offer up to them in these closing words some admonitions that that touch on several areas of their life. For example, in 13.1, he says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Remember, Jesus said, the world's going to know that the Father sent me if you do what? If you love each other. So that's what we need to be about here. We need to be about loving each other so the idle well will know that God sent his son. 
Do not neglect to show, your, show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Be hospitable. Be a, be a welcomer as a follower of Jesus. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Show compassion uh, for those who are suffering for Jesus' sake. Don't forget them. And then in verse 4 comes the challenge to take the high moral ground as it concerns our sexual lives. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so there's serious consequences if we compromise with this. And then comes verses 5 and 6. It's a warning not to get wrapped up in the material trappings of this life. Verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Apparently in this season of intense persecution, these Christians were suffering material losses for following Jesus, losing their jobs, having their property confiscated, uh, being disowned by their families, being disinherited. In the midst of their loss and their pain, the fear about an uncertain future starts to press in on them. They don't know what it's going to be like, but they don't think it's going to be good. And that's when the Holy Spirit gives this promise. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Does that sound familiar? So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not. What's the next word? Fear. What can man do to me? Now, the immediate context concerns itself with material, financial, vocational uncertainty where fear can begin to grow. But the promise spills over into all areas of our Christian life. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, God says to the New Testament follower of Jesus. And so we confidently say, Lord, you're my helper. I will not fear what man might do to me. Lord, you're right here with me as I'm sitting in this room called Idlewell Bible Church Sanctuary. You have been with me since the day I gave my life to you. You are so, so faithful. Never once have you taken your eye off of me. Never once have you not had thoughts about me that outnumber the sand on the seashore. In the face of fear, I will say, you are my helper. I will not be afraid because you will never leave me. You will never forsake me. You have promised that to me. Allow that strong assurance, that promise to to just sink down for a moment into your soul. Especially if this morning you may have brought future-focused fear into this room with you. Not because you, you wanted to or intended to, but because it has gained a foothold in your life and you can't seem to evict it especially if that's what you're facing right now. Let this truth settle down. God says, in fact, read it again slowly. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Ever. So we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
So God's promise in the Old Testament to be present with his people is repeated in the New Testament here. And if that were not enough to convince us about the validity of the promise, Jesus himself gives us this same promise. It's his own personal promise, his presence to be with us. Just after his resurrection, right before his return to heaven, in Matthew chapter 28, last last. Two verses of the book of Matthew. In a section we commonly refer to as the Great Commission, Jesus says this to all of his followers, not just those present that day, but all who have followed him in faith. Here's what he says. This is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We'll put it on the screen for us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lance was just calling our attention to that in his announcement about the learning opportunities, right? The discipleship opportunity this summer. The Great Commission, the discipling of others, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then look at verse 20. And behold, Jesus says, I am what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a promise from Jesus himself to you and me. We will never, ever be alone. I am with you. How long? Always, even to the end of the age. Now, if we take all of the truths that have been packed into these passages that we've looked at, both in the Old Testament and the New, there are no less than five wonderful uh, truths about God that just kind of fall out. And I've included them there on your note page. We really won't have time to unpack them, but I, I just wanted them to be there for you. Maybe you can go back and discover more about them. But each one deserves really its own morning of focus. But check this out, how powerfully these reinforce the promise of his presence. Obviously, God is present. I will never leave you. I am with you always, Jesus says. But but God is personal in these words. I am with you always. Your God is with you, God says to Joshua in 1.9. God is powerful. He says, be strong and very courageous. How can we do that? We can be strong because God is strong, right? We're strong in his strength. God is practical here. Do not be frightened. He's going to address the issues of my life. He's not out there in the theory land. He is right here with the issues I deal with. Do not be frightened. I will not fear because he is with me. God will provide. The fifth truth. The Lord is my what? He's my helper. He's my helper. He will supply. So the promise of God's presence is a difference maker, brothers and sisters. It it really does change how you live, how you think, how you act, if you embrace this promise and really live in it. There's a settledness of soul that this promise gives and, and a comfort that can't be bought at any price. In the Old Testament, David, Israel's revered king, writer of many of the Psalms, he got it. He understood the the power of this promise. He'll write in Psalm 139 words that I know many of you are familiar with. He'll write these words. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your what? Your presence. Where do I go to get away from you? 
If I ascend to heaven, say it, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I'm always in the presence of my God, David says. I couldn't escape from him even if I wanted to. I can't. But it is with the coming of Jesus that we experience an even more comforting truth. A truth that belongs to every New Testament believer in Him. Not am I I, uh, only in His presence, but when I am in His presence, He is also in me. And you can't get any closer than to have God in you. Only hours from the cross, Jesus is speaking to His disciples. Here's what He says. John chapter 14, verse 16. On the screen. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And, and he will give you another helper to be with you for forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Not just next to you, not just beside you. He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. That's the promise of what? That's the promise of Jesus' presence. For you and me living in this time and in the truth of the cross and in the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, the declaration that God is always with me, takes on a a whole new meaning. It's mysterious to be sure. God coming to live inside of me by His Spirit, that is a mystery, but it is real. It is true. God with me, but more than that, God in me. Do you believe it? It's true. It's His promise. That Hebrews 13, 6 passage said, So, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. Why is the Lord my helper? Because he's given the helper to live in me. What can man do to me? The promise of God's presence. Such truth compels Paul to write in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us when the water is muddy, when the future is unclear, when... Fear is wanting to come and and pay us a visit. The Spirit helps us. How does the Spirit help us? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What a precious truth, fellow Christian. What a comfort it is to know that the harder the day gets, the darker the night is, the more numerous and determined the pleadings of the Holy Spirit become. For us, the harder he leans into us and prays. Sometimes we have trouble hearing his voice because of fear. Not because God has backed away, but because of fear. But to know that the Holy Spirit prays, that, that is incredibly comforting. He is in us, praying for us. 
Someone commenting on the truth of Romans 8.26 got it right when they said, if we could hear the Holy Spirit praying for us in the next room, if we could just hear that, we would not fear a thousand enemies. It's true. It's true. There's a song that we sing here at the Bible Church. Brandon taught it to us a couple of years ago now. And the song is called Never Once. And it takes everything that we have been sharing together in these moments about God's promise of presence and kind of just puts it together into this, this powerful musical praise. And, and I can't imagine not, not concluding our morning without singing it and allowing it to be our collective corporate prayer. So I'm going to invite the, the team, if they would come now up front, and get their instruments on as I just remind us of the words that we're about to sing. You know these words. You've sung this song before, never once. How does it go? Standing on this mountaintop. Is that appropriate? Yeah, that's us right now. Standing on this mountaintop, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step, you were what? With us. Kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory was your power where? In us. Scars and struggles on the way, but with joy our hearts can say, yes, our hearts can say, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. Never once. Did we ever walk alone? Never once did you leave us on our own. What is that, church family? That's the promise of God's presence.